Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Don't sleep through the revolution. This was the title of Dr. King's lecture at our Unitarian Universalist General Assembly 50 years ago this May. He opened with these words. There are those wonderful moments in life when you speak before a group that is so near and dear to you that you don't feel like you need to engage in the art of persuasion. You know that you are with friends. I can assure you that I feel that way tonight. Dr. King goes on to say that his fondness for Unitarian Universalists began in the early 1950s when he was a student at Boston University. He says, I can remember on several occasions visiting Arlington Street Church, where your distinguished Dr. Greeley pastored at the time. Last week in religious education, I told the children that Dr. King had been here, and their eyes widened. The real one? They asked, yes, I said. The real Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came to services at Arlington Street Church. He came through our great doors. He sat in the pews that you are sitting in this morning. This place that is so sacred and special to us was visited by someone whose words are so inspirational, it would be hard to find someone who does not know his name. While this is an exciting piece of history, something else he said to the General Assembly in his opening words stuck with me. As a lifelong UU, I was moved by Dr. King's sincere familiarity with our faith. Here, a man who is so well-known and respected, a man I grew up believing in as deeply as I believed in anything, said that we, Unitarian Universalists, are his friends. I want to repeat those opening words again. There are those wonderful moments in life when you speak before a group that is so near and dear to you that you do not have to engage in the art of persuasion. You don't feel like you are in the midst of strangers. You know that you are with friends. I can assure you that is the way I feel tonight. I was not alive in 1966. All that I know of Dr. King and the civil rights movement of the 1960s, I learned in school or church or from the people in my life who were alive at that time. And that includes many of you whose dedication and faithfulness continue to inspire me today. But the intimacy of Dr. King's words still reach me. In his famous I Have a Dream speech, Dr. King said, I have a dream that one day little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white girls and little white boys and walk together as sisters and brothers. 
Today we dream of a time when children of all colors will walk together as siblings. In 1966, Dr. King challenged us to live up to his high standards of friendship, a challenge that requires us to transcend theological and social boundaries so we can work together in the struggle for civil rights and racial justice. Dr. King had high hopes for the future of our friendship. When he was assassinated in Memphis in 1968, Unitarian Universalists joined many others in grieving the loss of a friend. As individuals and as a community, we have the ability to make choices as to how we will continue to honor our friend. Will we simply send flowers? Or will we continue to work with others to make his dream for our world a reality? How can we continue to be good friends? What does friendship call us to do? These are questions we must not only ponder with regard to our relationship to Dr. King, but also with regard to our relationships with the people in our lives. How do we incorporate our commitment to racial justice and our belief in the inherent worth and dignity of all beings into our friendships? I recently heard two stories of friendship that had a great impact on me. The first comes from Kathy Kinnear Hill. Kathy grew up in Portland, Oregon, and her story takes place in 1965 when she was eight years old. Here's Kathy. My best friend is Lena. She has beautiful green eyes and sandy blonde hair. And then there is me. At the time, I don't think I had a lot of teeth. I was eight years old. We were best friends. One day, she invited me swimming. It was July, hot in Portland. I was excited. I had been swimming a lot, but not in her pool. So I packed my little beach bag like it was a big outing. It was only 13 blocks away. And I had my towel with daisies on it and a dollar fifty, a dollar so I could get into the pool and 50 cents so I could get two dreamsicles. This was heaven. So we get up to the desk before you can enter the pool and Lena was so proud to say, we are members here and I brought my friend. The guy at the desk must have been 15. He had a blonde buzz cut and icy, mean blue eyes. He looked at Lena and said, you can come in, but she can't. What? Did we hear that right? No, said Lena. This is my best friend. I can bring a friend. She's my very best friend, and I can do that, and she has a dollar. I held up my dollar, but he wouldn't take it. No, said Lena. My mom and dad said I can bring a friend. She's Kathy. She's my best friend, and we're going to swim. He looked at her and said, you can go in. She can't. So what does an eight-year-old girl do when she knows what is going on, but she has never seen it before? In my neighborhood, I'd been called that word. There's always one creep in the neighborhood, but institutionalized racism, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know that it was policy. I didn't even know the word policy. But I knew in my heart that I was not going to swim that day. 
So I looked at Lena and I said sincerely, you swim, you can come over later. And she's eight, so she did. She walked away. I turned around and the other kids in line were all looking at me, but they weren't looking at me with hate. They were looking at me because they were confused. For some reason, I was being punished and the crime was the color of my skin. So I walked out. I walked what might have been the longest walk of my life and the loneliest home. Kathy told this story almost 50 years after it occurred. The memory of the injustice she experienced stays with her, and although she does not blame her friend, things could have been different. I wonder how Lena remembers that day. What if Lena had gone home too? What if Kathy had not had to make that walk alone? May we make a commitment to live our lives in a way that nothing like this will happen on our watch. The second story is from Dr. Joy DeGruy, author of Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. In a video with over 1.5 million views, she shares this story. One day, Joy, her 10-year-old daughter, and her sister-in-law, Kathleen, went to the grocery store. Joy and Kathleen are very close. They're family, but they're also friends. Joy is black, and she says Kathleen is half black and half white with a very pale skin and blue eyes. After getting their groceries, Joy and Kathleen go to the same checkout line where a young, freckled, strawberry blonde cashier is working. When Kathleen goes to check out, the cashier greets her with a smile. Hey, how are you? Isn't it a nice day? Kathleen pays with a check and then moves to the side with her groceries so she can wait for Joy. When Joy gets to the cashier, there is no conversation. Joy says that her daughter noticed the difference immediately. When Joy hands the cashier a check, the young woman tells Joy she will need two forms of ID. Joy's daughter begins to cry. Remembering this moment, Joy says, I'm trying to figure out what I should do because behind me are two elderly white women, so I know if I do something, then I become the angry black woman. Joy decides not to say anything and hands over two forms of ID. Then things get worse. The cashier pulls out the bad checkbook and begins to look for Joy's picture. At this point, Joy is deeply humiliated. Her daughter is incredibly upset. The situation is out of control. And then, Kathleen comes back over and says, excuse me, why are you doing this? The cashier goes, what do you mean? And Kathleen says, why are you taking her through all these changes? Why are you doing that? And the cashier goes, well, this is our policy. No, it's not your policy, says Kathleen, because you did not do that with me. Oh, well, I know you. You've been here for years. No, said Kathleen. She has been here for years. I've only been here for three months. 
At that point, the two elderly white ladies behind Joy and Line speak up. Oh, I can't believe what this cashier has done to this woman. It is totally unacceptable. And the manager walks over and asks, is there a problem here? And Kathleen says, yes, there is a problem here. Here is what happened. Remembering that day, Joyce says, you see, Kathleen used her white privilege, even though she is half black, half white, she recognizes what that means. And she made the statement, she pointed out the injustice, and she, as a result of that one act, influenced everyone in that space. But what would have happened, I can't know for certain, had the black woman said, this is unfair, what are you doing to me? Would it have had the same impact? Kathleen knew that she walked through the world differently than I did. And she used her white privilege to educate and make right a situation that was wrong. That is what you can do every single day. Every single day, there is an opportunity to be the friend who doesn't stay silent in the presence of injustice. Today we're talking about how white privilege can be used as a tool to dismantle racism, but the story is bigger than that. Every day there's a chance to use whatever privilege you have, be it race, class, sex, religion, ability, to be the friend your friend deserves. This is Dr. King's legacy of friendship. This was the dream he had for each of us. And it requires us to stay awake and be brave. We become friends with someone because we admire them, we respect them, we see things in them that we treasure and find absolutely fabulous. Their passions and interests enliven our own and the feeling is mutual. When we stay friends with someone, perhaps for a long, long time, it is not because it is convenient. Long-term friendships are rarely convenient. Two people move and grow and change. They experience heartache and pain. They can be distant, mean, or needy. Staying friends with someone for a long time is hard work. And that work makes the friendship all the more rewarding, all the more valuable. The Unitarian Universalist Movement and Arlington Street Church have been friends with the evolving movement for racial justice and equality for many generations. It has not been easy, but if it continues to be something we value and believe in, it requires us to commit to it. It is a friendship in which we must be humble about our own shortcomings and forgiving of the shortcomings of our friends. At the end of his lecture, Dr. King said, let me say in conclusion that I have not despaired of the future. I believe firmly that we can solve this problem. I know that there are still difficult days ahead and they are days of glorious opportunity. Friends, may we continue to see the glorious opportunity that shines through these difficult times. May we remember Dr. King's great hopes for our friendship. May we have the courage to step in when we can. At times, the road to a more just and peaceful world 
is a lonely one. May we commit to never letting our friends walk that road alone. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.